Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House One Home. I'd like to take a moment to remember Bob Dole. We shall all miss him, the great American, great patriot, great humorist, and a good friend of this program. He once bellowed across the National Press Club, I love that program. And I thought, Bob Dole, I love you. Joining me today are Linda Gasparello, the show's co-host and producer, and David Downey, CEO of the International Downtown Association in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Linda, and welcome, David. David, we're all interested in what is happening to cities. Uh, the pandemic has forced a lot of people to work at home, and apparently a lot of people like working at home. And we, we're going to have a different pattern of work going forward and a different requirement of our cities. What is going on? We've seen where the pandemic, for the most part, has really accelerated existing trends. So when you ask about what is the future of work, and of course, for the International Downtown Association, we're interested in knowing how will that impact our urban centers. We're beginning to make plans, of course, for uh, a new work hybrid model, if you will, in which case, you know, many of the major employers, uh, especially in the office market, will not require their employees to come in each and every day. And so we recognize that that workplace is, is going to evolve, um, much like cities have evolved for, for centuries. And uh, what will happen? I mean, will we actually see office buildings converted to apartments or in some cases torn down and used uh, to replaced with apartments or replaced with something quite different like a park? IDA is uh, supporting a bill called the Revitalizing Downtowns Act that is really going to try and address exactly that, Llewellyn. We, we recognize that coming out of COVID-19, I think all of our office uh, uh, offices around the downtowns, around our city centers, will be less utilized or perhaps underutilized to some degree. But those in particular, the Class B and Class C buildings, we would like to incentivize through a tax credit so that property owners and the businesses can look at adaptive reuse for just as you suggested, new institutions, perhaps affordable housing or just housing in general, uh, as well as mixed use developments would be ideal for, for really keeping our cities vibrant. David is the CEO of the downtown, International Downtown Association. You look at a lot of cities, primarily in America, but in many other countries where you have understand sister operations. What are the commonalities that are extra national? Well, amongst our industry, we are what we call urban place management organizations. You might want to think of them almost like a commercial version of a homeowners association. In cities around the world, uh, beginning first with Canada and then the US, we had business improvement areas, business improvement districts where the property owners came together, they're providing additional uh, revenue in the form of, a, of an assessment on their buildings. And they, they work in partnership with cities with, to get the permission to do things in the public realm. So a great way of understanding our industry is when you see additional cleaning and maintenance services on the sidewalk or people uh, assisting others who may be um, uh, suffering from the effect of homelessness or yoga in the park. Many of, our off, many of our organizations are responsible for the pop-up 
retailing programs that you've seen on the sidewalks re recently or extending restaurants uh, out into the sidewalk. This idea of a management organization that works in the public realm in our urban centers is what our members do. The commonality across the world is that has grown from 1970 in Canada to 1972 in the US and has flourished throughout North America, but now we see this manifesting in the UK, in Sweden, in Japan. We have strong membership in South Africa, both Cape Town and Johannesburg. And we're really seeing where this idea of the private sector investing in the public realm for the betterment of their community is exactly what our members do. They're urban place management professionals. David, long before COVID, uh, cities were experiencing uh, large homeless populations and cities from San Francisco to Austin to uh, the District of Columbia. Um, I've seen those populations swell. So I'd like to know what your association is recommending uh, to cities to help um, find a solution to this problem. I think what I've seen is uh, homeless populations who are living in tents on the streets um, and they're moved out to other parts of the city. So it's sort of kicking the can down the road. Um, do you have anything that you're recommending right now for cities to do to address this problem, a growing problem? Right, right. Well, our, our members exist in most of the cities across all of North America. And um, working with people affected by homelessness is, is a challenge that, that we take head on. Many of my members have outreach coordinators. Uh, we are not the social service providers, but we try and provide an out, outreach mechanism that connects people affected by homelessness with the services that are available from municipalities um, and, and from their county, uh, county agencies. Um, we recognize that though it's a, it's a long-term endeavor. You know, we have to move at the speed of trust, as they say. And we know the strategies that work best are the housing first models, but that starts to bring in some of the other challenges we have, which is you know, the, the absence or the lack of affordable, appropriate housing, especially those who are affected by homelessness. So much like you see in California, I think Governor Newsom is taking a very proactive approach to trying to build more housing. We're seeing new models emerge in Reno, Nevada uh, to try and accommodate uh, specifically those who are affected by homelessness. But you know, for our members across the country, uh, and this exists of course in uh, Canada as well, the idea is can we have uh, outreach workers on the, on the street building relationships with people affected by homelessness, finding out what their needs are and moving them at their, at their pace towards uh, effective uh, solutions like Housing First and Wraparound Social Services. That's what we advise all municipalities to consider. Your members, David, are, are property owners. They are the people who own the properties that are downtown, right? They are property owners, and in some places, it's the businesses that uh, operate in those buildings. Uh, they they are the owners of the of the district management organization. The district management organization are professionals that work each and every day in that area, and that organization is my member. And what is the bill that is before Congress that you are supporting? So we have what's called the Downtown Revitalizations Act, and it looks to to provide a uh, 
20% tax credit for the rehabilitation of underutilized office space towards new uses, be it institutional, mixed use, and of course, um, housing. Um, this bill, which is sponsored by Senator Stabenow from Michigan, um, and has great support uh, on both the House and the, the Senate, um, we hope will continue to move forward. And if a individual property owner takes advantage of this uh, tax benefit and chooses to do housing, we've also written into the bill that at least 20% of the units would have to meet the local affordability criteria. And how does that work? Um, affordability suggests building special apartments, usually maybe houses for people who don't have very much money. Uh, does that work? Uh, there is another argument that I have heard, which is that you should build for people who, what, what the market will bear, and everything will move up, and those properties at the bottom uh, will become available uh, for people who can't afford them at the top. And where I've seen the attempt to include uh, affordable housing, which I'm a big advocate of, but were to include it as part of a mix is it's sort of not worked terribly well because you've had the, 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 the sense of, a, of isolation of a poverty pocket in prosperity. How do you design around that? Yeah, you, you know, when we, when we talk about housing, from our perspective, you know, IDA has continually looked to try and build complete communities. Now, I can remember back in the 90s when we were looking at our urban centers and they were largely empty, if you will. And I think we've been very successful in revitalizing city centers. There's been a complete new um, appreciation and, and a market desire to live in a walkable, urban, dynamic place. That's both for the knowledge worker, the younger generations. We've heard much about millennial generations and now Gen Z and everyone looking for that, that hip urban experience. But it's also true, we know, of uh, empty nesters who are, want to return back to their urban centers where there's a walkable environment. I say this because I think we have done a wonderful job of revitalizing and re-inhabiting, re if you will, our city centers. But you bring out a, an, an exact challenge that we uh, face, which is um, there, there is now an affordability challenge. Um, the market has really been in a high demand for housing in urban centers. So of course, it has been quite uh, out of reach for many. That's to me the challenge that we face coming out of COVID. When we talk about affordability, we talk about attainable housing. So that would be a housing for all. It's not just pure subsidized housing. It's not um, just uh, uh, purely affordable. It's workforce housing. It's mixed income housing. And so when we set forth the legislation to look at providing more housing, we are leaning on the local authorities who determine what they believe to be affordability. Often it's something called um, 60 or 80% of the average median income for the city or AMI. And rather than dictating what is affordable for any given jurisdiction, we can build a formula that says, we expect at least 20% of all units to meet the affordability standards of the local jurisdiction. 
One of the things I've heard, David, from uh, developers is that they can't afford to build affordable, that the costs of building and renovating are so high these days that they can really only do it if they've got a high percentage of high, high rent or high sale units because they just can't make it if they don't have a larger percent of high rent or high sale units. That affordability, um, it, the lower rent or lower sale units are just killing it. So what kind of solutions do you have uh, or what kind of recommendations do you have there? So this is precisely one of the opportunities from the Revitalizing Downtowns Act, Linda, because you know every, every construction project, every rehabilitation uh, building project is a financing challenge. Um, it's never a single approach. It's usually multi-layers of financing. So from our perspective, uh, modeled after the historic preservation tax credit that has successfully um, allowed us to maintain and uh, rehab old historic buildings, this is a similar tax credit that also helps to bridge the affordability gap. So if an, a, a building developer um, or building owner can redevelop a project and receive that 20% tax credit back uh, on qualified expenses for the construction, that not only saves, saves a building, it's, it's more sustainable, if you will, um, for our environment to keep um, the existing building and reuse it, but also too, that financing, financing mechanism becomes another layer in the financing cake that helps to bring that affordability uh, component in, into reach. What is your ideal composition of a city? Is it a, do you have an ideal? Do you, do you really say 20% affordable, 30% reasonable, 40%, um, and uh, maybe 10% for the billionaires who want to live in the 18th story in New York City? I think what I've come to realize over 25 plus years of doing uh, communities work is we need to let local jurisdictions, the citizens, the civic leaders, the, built, the business community work together with the tools that they need to help build what we hope are going to be complete communities. So that rather than just looking at one segment of the market, people are doing a, a stronger collaborative work in understanding the needs of everyone in that community. Because I think we're seeing those challenges really manifest throughout COVID-19. You know, we need people at um, every level of socioeconomics to provide for every part of a functioning city. And the more that we can bring those people together in what you know, often is called a 15-minute city, either by car, transit, bicycle, walking, it's just going to improve quality of life for many. Uh, we saw something very interesting about 30 years ago when the department stores downtown moved to the suburbs. Shopping centers were built. Every city had a key department store, every city in the country. And they were great institutions. And basically, they either moved to the suburbs or they were pushed out by chain stores in the suburbs, uh, department stores which had succeeded in turning themselves into chains like Bloomingdale's. Um, and that, that went quite well. Most of them, I've looked around at some of them, I always loved the old department stores. And mostly they seem to be turned into apartments. 
um, they've been repurposed, if you will, that word of the time, um, as apartments. You can see that with uh, downtown Washington. You can see it in downtown uh, Baltimore, etc. Um, is that a viable expectation of what will happen going forward? Those department stores were not big empty boxes as today's department stores were. I think uh, reuse of buildings in general has its own challenges. Um, one way we like to describe it is when, whether it's a department store or whether you're thinking about an office environment, there may be a central core uh, that, that houses you know, restroom facilities, elevators, um, all the mechanical uh, necessities of a building. Once we look to redevelop those into mixed uses or residential or uh, breaking them into smaller spaces because retailing is changing by its very nature, um, that means we have to reconfigure the internal mechanisms of a building. Um, that in itself is extraordinarily expensive, but again, uh, much more much more um, plausible than just completely eliminating and starting from scratch and certainly uh, much better for, uh, for the environment and protecting some of the authenticity and character and, and things of that nature that have evolved uh, over the last you know, three, four decades. I'd like to turn to another topic, which is parks. The city of Boston has a great park. New York has got a great park. Washington was so lucky when Rock Creek Park was developed. And parks to me signal- a And I might I interrupt and say Houston has a huge number of parks. That's right. And that seems to bring a, a happiness. It, it brings people to the city because they wanna be near parks. Uh, are you recommending that that more parks be built in places, in, you know, that buildings be torn down and parks replace these buildings, uh, it, 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 it might be something that I, I think could revitalize many cities in the United States that haven't had the advantage of all the parts of the cities that I've mentioned. You know, uh, it's a great question and, and we have never advocated the tearing down of buildings specifically for building of parks. Um, what we find interesting is uh, natural parks, civic spaces, the public realm, there truly is an abundant amount of open space inside of most every city. The question becomes, what's the conditions of those open spaces, be them plazas or natural parks? Um, in our industry, we look to activate those parks as much as possible to program them, to make them more inviting and accessible. And as, you, as you've also seen over the recent decades, many of the plaza systems of the, um, I'll say the 60s and 70s era design are being redesigned and rehabilitated to have more of a more green space in them. So I think there's a great deal that we can do within the existing rights of way and the existing um, uh, public realm, be it the, the parks and plazas of today or even looking at all of the real estate between two, the buildings and the streets. Do the streets need to be as wide as they are? Could we have more sidewalks? Could we have more plazas and pocket parks, smaller spaces in between buildings, repurposing some laneways? These are all ways in which we bring more open space to the urban center so that people living 
perhaps in smaller spaces of apartments and condominiums, will have an outside world where they can uh, they can take in nature, they can um, find their front front yard, perhaps even their own backyard in the way of a public space. I'd like to ask you about smart cities. For three years or so, I've been writing and broadcasting and investigating smart cities, which are interconnected the use of technology to make cities more efficient, more attractive in some ways, uh, make the traffic lights work better to synchronize them, get the ambulances to arrive faster, the police cars to get through, and things that you don't see, like the flow of water and its efficiency, it's the future. Um, are you involved? And what is the state of what I call the smart city movement? It's certainly pushed by the high-tech companies who have a big interest in smart cities. How is that coming? So it's a fascinating topic, and it's enormous, as you well know, uh, Llewellyn. Uh, for for but, the IDA but, members, I'd be expecting you to answer this in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's pretty fascinating because, uh, you know, when I think of smart cities, I can think of anything from um, the building systems that help us to understand how to gain access through key fobs, which in turn, it's right now providing us information on the, uh, the occupancy numbers for office buildings around the country, you know, which is driving our ideas about maybe conversion of office to other uses is going to be a priority because we still have not tipped over 50% of office utilization since COVID started. But I can also think of smart cities as um, the intelligent you know, rubbish bins or trash cans that will signal to maintenance uh, programs that they're full and need to be emptied rather than going to every single trash receptacle around the, the city, we can more efficiently go just to those areas where there's actually full trash cans. Uh, you mentioned traffic lighting and things of that, of that nature. All of that becomes the smart city movement. And I think we're only getting better at it as we begin to embrace technology. Um, it's an enormous topic. Um, I know for our members, just having access to public Wi-Fi not only serves for um, an understanding of how better to manage uh, the city itself or their district, but it also helps bridge the digital divide for those that need access. We're starting to see all of those uh, electronic kiosks show up in our urban, our urban downtowns with mapping and information resources. All of that's driven by you know, smart city technology, uh, as well as we know buildings have had smart, um, smart HVAC systems and, and uh, LEED certified buildings for decades as well. So it continues to evolve and I think it will only keep getting better. Linda? Uh, David, this is a rather basic question, but there is a public need for public restrooms and cities used to have these public restrooms. Washington had them. You, saw, you have them in New York. Paris has got these wonderful public restrooms that are everywhere, and they've had them for years and years and years. As does London, and practically all European cities have them. Uh, so Europeans visiting, visiting the US are appalled to find out that you have to actually go into a restaurant or a hotel. Uh, and yet, nobody reads a great fuss about the lack of restrooms. 
Right. And I think for building owners or restaurant owners that are in downtowns, you know, this is this is not a good thing. So and especially in the time of COVID. So uh, what have any of your members addressed this question uh, and are there any recommendations on for them? Sure. So, you know, this is this is one area um, in some cities where the private sector through the management organizations have really stepped up and really provided added benefit and service to the visitor, to the, the individual who's, uh, who's, who's visiting and participating or, or just, you know, commuting to the office and perhaps doesn't get there quick enough. Um, so we, we've seen where some public restrooms that may be in parking garages, I'm thinking of Santa Monica, California in particular, um, have stationed their ambassadors. These are the additional street maintenance uh, crews as well as uh, visitor ambassador crews that are often found in, uh, in our member districts. They've actually stationed them in the parking garages where there are restrooms. So not only can they be maintained but they can also have um, you know, eyes on the street and a presence to ensure that the restrooms are um, in good working order and, and safe. Uh, we saw a, a remarkable program that took place in Winnipeg, uh, Canada, where they did a mobile, uh, a mobile uh, what do you call them, shipping container design that provided for both accessible uh, restrooms as well as um, um, uh, other facilities. And because it was shipping container based, it was able to be moved around to the areas of the city that might need it the most. I have lived in London, New York, and Washington, three big cities, all of which are marked by their public transportation. Um, excellent in London, quite good in New York, not bad, really, in Washington, if you know how to use the buses. If you can find out where they're going, you'll find them a very good way of getting around. How important is public transportation and what is its future? Well, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a huge fan of public transportation in all forms, uh, whether it's you know train, bus rapid transit, even bicycle, walking, and now we have and scooters, scooters, and scooters. Uh, scooters are public transportation, are they not? They, they are, as are bike shares. Um, and, and I think, I mean, good old two feet is a form of public transportation. I think, you know, while, while transit ridership was down even before COVID, and in this country, we've had a challenge with, you know, train systems, I do see where public transit is going to be key to the success of, of uh, walkable urban centers, um, getting people out of single occupancy vehicles, reducing congestion, um, just as we saw during COVID, so people can enjoy the street uh, areas much better. Uh, we need to continue investing in our public transportation system, but not recognizing that as always trains, but just a multitude of multimodal transportation options We've yet to see the impact of autonomous vehicles, but I know many people are thinking about that. That is our show for today. Thank you for coming along and enjoy your city. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. 
all shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.